This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I am Dave, the host of the show, and with me, as always, in a silent capacity is Brent Van Tassel, my producer extraordinaire, the co-founder of the Podbelly Network of Podcasts, of which we are a member. Um, if you want to learn something about uh, podcasting, if you want to start your own podcast, or if you just want to find some great podcasts you can listen to, you can go to podbelly.com. We are, of course, a Podbelly original, and it's just a great place for all things podcast. Um, also, we are brought to you by our primary sponsor, El Yucateco Hot Sauce. They are a true delight of hot sauce. Um, they're a little bit spicier than um, your typical red ketchup that you might get at the grocery store, but the flavor is just incredible. Um, one of the things I do myself is I'll take a bunch of it and add it to barbecue sauce, and it elevates the barbecue sauce as if a light is emanating from the heavens into the saucepan. So um, check them out, El Yucateco. You can go to their website to get their products or their swag. Um, but uh, great stuff, something that you should look into. And then finally, if you um, dig what we're putting out here, uh, check us out on patreon.com backslash mindframepodcast. Um, as always, uh, we do our um, sit-down episodes every week where uh, we sit down and talk about the, the mysteries that are slowly unraveling. Um, we talk about writing. We have some laughs. Um, we typically, to be quite honest, drink a little bit of whiskey, um, and relax a little bit, but it's a good time. It's sort of an entire second podcast and, uh, it's only yours if you're a patron. So, uh, check out patreon.com if you want to get into it. So here we are chapter 19 and, um, we're getting back to, um, our good friend, Grim Bolivar, where we last left Grim. He had finally broken down and gone back to the plaza to give, um, the bookstore manager, um, a pass for the Academy for her daughter, Sophie. And, um, on his way out, he suddenly spied Penny who was getting on a train and he boldly dashed after her and boarded the train. So that's where we pick up. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Mindframe. Chapter 19, Grim Bolivar, 2136. Grim spied up the train car and back down. There was no real reason to hide his presence or intention, but he used practice techniques of looking for someone without looking like you were looking. He saw quickly that Penny wasn't in this compartment. The reflection of night on window made it easy for him to see the entire car and all of its occupants, the panopticon of a glass echo. If it was an evening, there surely would have been a magnificent view of the Pacific Ocean from his position on the elevated train. Grim walked to the little doors between cars and peered into the four-train, then did the same with the aft. He didn't see her on either one, but the view was limited and the cars full. The train stopped once, then again several blocks later. He watched the passengers on the platforms and hadn't seen Penny disembark. A third stop and a fourth, and then at what must have been a major intersection of trains, half the passengers disembarked and dozens crammed into the cars. As the doors slid shut, Grim saw Penny, or at least the hem of her dress, as it walked up some stairs to another part of the platform. Grim bolted through the doors, which closed on him tight enough to say, don't make a habit of this, and then grudgingly peeled themselves open, just wide enough to let him out. He was a bit turned around in the crowd. The train had gone underground at some point instead of the rails and pylons that it hovered through, so he found the stairs Penny ascended. He climbed them, two at a time, and found the night air. 
a distant silhouette of Penny's dowdy clothes were his reward. The safe blue of the streetlights illuminated everything. This was an industrial area, not a housing neighborhood. Old cinema always showed crime in areas like this, the decay of urban sprawl filling the alleys with burning barrels, empty hypodermic needles, and used-up courtesans, very unlike the ones in his family's employ. But the GPF kept such anachronistic slums from manifesting. All neighborhoods were safe neighborhoods under WorldGov. Grimm knew that only the person made an area dangerous. He also knew that he was the only person here in danger, based on his isolated location and lack of guards or surveillance. This type of mistake was how he got caught by the Maglicis in Italy before he was tortured. Before their two houses forged peace. But instead of shadowy members of an enemy fifth house, Grimm found empty streets, save a few pubs and diners serving the workers in the warehouses that towered on all sides of him. Then he suddenly realized that he was the dangerous one in this neighborhood, the man who could stalk, could harm, could kill. He had done all before, unlike the workers of this factory hub. Grimm was nearing the shipping docks now, and this neighborhood was where goods and raw materials were stored for various parts of their global shuffle. He kept his distance from Penny, not wanting her to know he was back there, though he couldn't say why. Grimm excelled at not being seen when the need should arise. More family training. Penny's red hair was in a bun that defied the sea breeze blowing through the warehouse alleys. She checked her wrist regularly, making a turn here and a course correction there. Grimm recognized the pattern of someone following a map through a strange neighborhood and wondered why she was here. He realized she'd have no reason to be in this area since there was no housing, and she didn't know where she was going, so this was new to her as well. Did she just start a second job to accumulate more vouchers for some reason? Did she have a lover who worked here, someone she met on his or her work break for a bite to eat? They walked for several blocks, and the crowd grew dense enough that he could stay invisible without as much sulking, ducking, and fanfare. There were more drinking houses and restaurants, and this seemed a place where the warehouse workers converged. There were various food options here, and bus stops. Music played from a set of open doors. Laughter was heard. Finally, Penny entered a bar after doing a double-take to make sure the street address was what the pigment on her wrist said it was. It was a bare-bones place, the only signage being a generic neon sign that said bar and an ancient faded painting of a cartoon character on the cinder block wall. Grimm recognized the figure from his cultural studies classes. He was a tragic figure who showed the effects of both laziness and greed on the psyche of pre-war, pre-vote capitalistic America. Grimm remembered him always begging for food in cartoons, hoping to eat on credit and pay the person back on Tuesday always Tuesday for some reason, for a simple sandwich of fried meats. Above the old cartoon image, the character's name was painted, suggesting a name for the place. Wimpy's. The bar was packed full, a crowd of laborers coming off shift. Grim pulled the collar of his jacket up against the wind and leaned on the wall. He'd have stood out if he dressed like anyone else in the Bolivar family, but his simple clothing didn't seem far afield from what the workers here wore. He just maybe looked like he was on his day off, was all. After a few minutes, the crowd inside fell silent, all at once, like woodland creatures who somehow sensed a predator. The music that was playing inside stopped. Grimm didn't know what could cause such a hush on a room of drinking laborers. 
As he prepared himself to either run from whatever trouble was starting in there or peer in to check on Penny, he heard a loud voice begin to talk. Clearly, everyone was here to listen to someone speak. Grim couldn't hear due to street traffic, so he walked around the building to find an entrance less obvious than the front door. In the side alley, a door vented out stale air near the crates of empty beer bottles. Grim posted up, sitting on a stack of empties, and peered in. He saw a short black man with neatly cut hair and oversized glasses. He was standing on a wooden crate and was only then as tall as the rest of the crowd. The speaker was overweight and his skin was about as dark as a human skin could be. His voice, though voluminous and easily capable of filling the air, was high-pitched with a rasp and gravel. The crowd was laughing at something the man had said as Grim peeked in. The crowd was not what he expected. It wasn't just laborers from the warehouses. It was a mix of all types, all ages. It was equally populated by men and women. He could identify students from the academy by their dress, but equally present were dock workers, shop owners, office folks, and of course, Penny. She was squeezed at the end of the bar with what looked like a club soda before her, though it could have been mixed with a clear liquor. Penny glanced about and kept peering at the front door. She seemed less comfortable in the bar than Grim did hovering in the alley. Someone in the bar asked the speaker a question that Grim couldn't make out. The crowd bustled and grumbled at whatever was just said. Someone issued an angry protest at the comment. The kaleidoscopic crowd had a hostile bent to it. The short man's voice pierced the air like a bird of prey's call. No, no. No anger here. That's the one thing we can all agree on, right? There will be no downvotes here tonight. The crowd laughed a bit as the speaker expertly eased the tension from the room. His vocal gymnastics had the tone of a preacher in a black church, and he continued, Let's think about the statement this gentleman just made. In case some of you didn't hear it, he said, The world vote causes slavery. I don't know if this is true. After all, a slave can't ever make themselves free. But the world vote lets all of us walk whatever path we choose as long as we work hard and the votes line up for us. And for us, literally us, here, in this aromatic room, the vote did line up. We all have vocations. We all earn vouchers. We all get upvotes from time to time. Only the worst, most dangerous people, the infamous 3%. Only that minority deemed unworthy by our grand society lived the life I'm assuming our angry friend was referring to, the life of true slavery. But not everyone can win when luck is involved, can they? If you gamble, any game, someone has to lose. If you partake in a society, any society, someone has to fall to the bottom. There is always a bad neighborhood needs to be lived in, a bog job needing to be worked. Listen, listen, when my great-grandma was alive, she told me about an old turkey farm she visited as a little girl back before the war, back when they ate turkeys. She said all the turkeys lived in harmony, but in each turkey house, the turkeys would take one bird and make it the outlaw. They'd starve it, peck at it, remove its feathers, torture it until it would die. Then the pack of turkeys would pick another one and do the same thing all over again. I asked her why they did that, and she said, someone's got to get the short end. The crowd was rapt. Grim couldn't believe someone was saying all this publicly. There were no laws against gathering and speaking one's mind, but such unpopular rhetoric guaranteed you several downvotes and a lower social status, often quite precipitously. 
The speaker, fueled by the eyes of the crowd, doubled down on his charisma and kept going. Is that true about us? We all have decent jobs. What do you do? He asked the tall Hispanic man. I teach kindergarten. Good. And you? Groundskeeping at the community parks, someone else said. Both noble vocations. And safe. But if WorldGov has a worse job, a dangerous job, they pay us a few more vouchers for doing it, and we're all considered even. They pay the same amount to all the rest of us, from a doctor to a janitor, but logically, they pay more for dangerous work. Pay. Though they tell us not to use that word because they abolished money. And of course, our jobs, our career paths, are decided by the world vote. When I was a little boy, I had an aptitude for music. My teacher started a petition that I become a musician, and then the world vote took over. Expert musicians who had the right to vote on such matters decided that for me. Now, I can sing my ass off. Play a mean piano, he said, fingers tickling the air. You, what were you voted to do? I'm a cabinet maker, someone said. You, the speaker said again. I just work here, answered the voice of an older man, obviously the bartender. The crowd ate it up and laughed heartily. This guy was good. He continued when the crowd quieted. And you? I'm an artist, Penny said. Not an art dealer, Grimm realized. An artist. Somehow that rang real and slightly realigned his definition of who she was. Good. The world needs more truth through art right about now. You were all voted to do that? Of course you were. You know what my wife does for a vocation? Her name is Sheila. It's not a noble vocation. Sheila cracks lunar rocks. She lives up on Luna, no way to get down. She works in the most hostile environment a man can step foot in. Sheila's lungs are burned from the chemicals, and her body is rotting in low gravity. She undergoes medical procedures at a lunar clinic, and the procedures cost more than the two of us could ever scrape together with medical vouchers. On Earth, it wouldn't be a big deal. The medicine would be free. But on Luna, medicine is scarce, so it's a commodity worthy of a voucher system. So we trade food and schooling and entertainment away to healthy people just to keep her propped up for another shift. Keep her muscles healthy enough that she might one day return to a full gravity down here on Earth. The crowd murmured. They were being played. Grimm saw the techniques the speaker was using. He asked a lot of questions so the audience would come up with their own answers. He engaged them, asking their vocations. He made sure he gave his wife, real or not, a name. Sheila, to be personified. The speaker was good at rhetoric, was molding the crowd as adroitly as any WorldGov propagandist could. Now, in this stale bar, they were all sharing a common life story with each other through this one man. They were all ready for whatever his grand grift happened to be this evening. I'll just bet you all know someone on Luna. Atlantis, the moisture farms, sluice mining up on the dumpster, these are jobs that are too dangerous for anyone to willingly perform. Even the extra vouchers we give to an asteroid miner or a firefighter wouldn't be enough to offset the risks in these modern-day gulags. So the system says we downvote people. We identify society's bottom percentile and send them off to these places. The co-worker who thinks the lariat is a bad idea, we downvote his ass. The old-timer who remembers what America was like before WVW, if he talks about it, we downvote him. Hell, that rude asshole who lives up the street from you and talks about your kids in a bad way? Downvote. 
the troublemaker talking shit to a bar full of good angry Californians. Downvote my black ass in a second, Jack. The speaker pounded his palm flat on the bar and took a swig of beer. Hoots erupted as dozens of others paused to shoot back their own social lubricants. The man said, down, 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 more quietly as the crowd drank and took a moment to nudge a neighbor or honk in assent. So look, look, we get mad. We want to rebel against the totalitarian government. We want to overthrow someone. But you want to know the problem? There is no totalitarian government. There is no dictator. That's the shits of it. That's the problem. Against who do we rebel? Ourselves? No. No, I answer no to my own not-so-rhetorical question because we are the very thing we'd have to rebel against. Us. You. Me. We are the world vote. We are our own captors, our own dictators, created by the people, for the people. There is no big brother foistering his malicious will upon the people. You see, instead of big brother, we have little cousin. Billions of little cousins, the entire solar system's population. We spy on each other. Hell, we don't have to spy. We let the world know where we are, what we're eating, how we feel, minute by minute through social media programs. It's all voluntary, the upvoting and downvoting, and that's the reason the problem is so complex. How do you overturn the most perfect world ever made by man or woman? The world. That's another thorn, isn't it? Nobody, not one person on this earth, has seen concrete evidence of this galactic government that exists on the other side of the so-called lariat. Nobody. Not even the messengers, those five mythical human beings who supposedly communicate with the aliens through some strange telepathic dreaming, has ever seen one. The collective will, the collective body, and the collective caloric effort of our entire species has been devoted not to opening a portal to a galactic wonderland, but to the supposition of such a thing. We don't even know what the Lariat will do, how the physics work, or if it actually is being built. Have you seen it? You? I know your ass hasn't seen it, he said, pointing to someone Grimm couldn't see from his vantage point in the alley. It met with laughter whoever he pointed at. I know I haven't seen it. Only Navy loyalists and members of the administrative class have ever seen it. Only members of the World Glove have seen it, the man said, miming the action of pulling on a long glove. Grimm's mind summoned the great black gloves worn by administrators in formal dress. He had to admit it was clever and wondered why World Glove had never caught on as a slang word. Then again, maybe it had but Grimm would never hear it in his social circles. So the world builds something we can never see or know is true. It worships the words of a group of so-called psychics who get marching orders from so-called space aliens. And people you know and love are slaves to the world glove, crushing space rock for oxygen and pressure welding in the Marianas Trench, and you can't speak out against it because that makes you unpopular. And in this world here, unpopularity has become a crime. And I know the party line on all this, and to be honest, I agree with it. We have less racism, less sexism, less of a gap between economic classes than ever in all of human history. We have no war, justice is swift for criminals, but we don't have criminals, only deviants. The crowd was silent. Grimm saw them looking from side to side, paranoid to even hear the term spoken out loud. 
The man continued after a sip of beer. Think of the term, not criminal, deviant. Someone who is different. Someone who thinks that the top 97% living on the backs of the bottom 3% isn't good enough. Because that bottom percent, it isn't just a statistic. It's millions of people, millions of fathers and sisters and mothers and daughters suffering with no way out. They never get a chance for an upvote because the overwhelming majority says so. They toil and they slave and they burn themselves up doing the worst possible labor in the worst possible condition. Nobody upvotes them because why? Because fuck them, they're deviants, that's why. They're the mothers of deviants, or the fathers of deviants, or the lovers. Henry David Thoreau once said, If the machine of government is of such a nature that it requires you to be the agent of injustice to another, then I say break the law. The crowd exploded in a mix of anger and joy. Someone tried to scream over the din, and Grimm heard several people walk out the front door. The last statement, the call to break the law, had done it. It pushed the crowd past a threshold of logic. Everyone there had the sudden, drummed-up desire for either fight or flight. Most stayed, ready to fight. Others left, never to attend a rally such as this again, Grimm suspected. He was fascinated by what was happening. Even for all of his street knowledge, being a member of a fifth house, he had never heard such things. The WorldGov kept these ideas suppressed, or worse, the people themselves suppressed it for fear of being labeled a deviant at spreading any such thoughts. Several people slipped past Grimm in the alley, exiting from the side instead of the front. He was almost shoved from his stack of beer crates. He stood on them to get out of the way, and with his attention away from the door and the mesmerizing speaker, he saw the glow of the Mo Yu in the hazy sky dense with oceanic moisture. It looked like there was a lightning storm in a clear sky, over the loose conglomerations of cities known as Los Angeles. He suddenly remembered Mr. Hayward from the plaza, warning of intelligence reports of a deviant rally. This had been it. Grimm had just attended. He considered dissolving into the crowd with the people milling out, but he wanted to see if Penny was still sitting at the bar. He craned his head to get a view inside the door he'd been spying through, and as he did so, Penny exited the bar with such speed that she knocked over the crates and toppled Grimm to the ground. I am so sorry, excuse me, she said, holding a hand down to help Grimm up. You should really not be back here. Inside the bar, there's some kind of... Penny realized who she'd just helped up, and various levels of realizations and confusions seemed to hit her in waves. Mr. Bolivar, you should not be back here. I had no idea what was going on with this invitation I had, but there's some sort of... I don't know, the man speaking there, his name's Rooney, he's a deviant and he's in there recruiting or something. What are you doing here? As the crowd inside the bar roared, Grimm remembered boarding the train. Mr. Hayward was monitoring his movements in the plaza. The GPF were probably monitoring his movements right now. He pictured them swooping in, descending from beams of hard light coming from the Mo Yu. They'd detain people, look for deviants. He was in no danger of legal or social trouble since his last name was Bolivar, but everyone nearby would be downvoted when it was made public, including Penny. Grimm grabbed Penny's hand and ran. She was faster than he was, and twice he tried to let go of her hand and let her run ahead, but twice 
she gripped him tighter and slowed down a little. Eventually, they stopped running and were both doubled over, breathing hard and laughing for no reason other than adrenaline. During the run, part of Penny's braid had come undone, and her hair was half bun, half frizz in the ocean air. Grim was still holding her hand. He let go of it to remove her glasses. She stood still under the blue glow of the Mo Yu's electric sky. Her skin was pale, and she looked like an elemental creature, a thing of breeze and sea foam. She was dusted in freckles on her fair skin. Grim undid the bun of her hair, letting it fall as wild red twists, grabbed the back of her neck, and kissed her on the mouth. She tasted of lime from the club soda's garnish, and as he pulled back to apologize, she grabbed his head with both hands and kissed him back. And so closes chapter 19. Grim and Penny have finally kissed. They've escaped Rooney's rhetoric in the bar, and we'll have to wait to see what happens next. Um, as always, we want to remind you um, that if you like what you're hearing, you can track down my first novel, 181 Pine, which is part one of the Six Paradigm series. It's a different sci-fi world and a slightly different sci-fi genre, but you might enjoy it. Um, and also the books of Zach Smith, the co-host of our sit-down episodes. You can find all of that fiction on the Mindframe podcast, and you can find swag and a really great merch store and all sorts of stuff there if you just go to mindframepodcast.com. Um, also, we uh, always thank El Yucateco for being our sponsor. Um, go to elyucateco.com and check out what they're up to. And remember, we are a member of the Podbelly Podcast Network. Um, that network has some really, really great shows on it. So regardless of what you're into, you can find you can find something there that you're going to like. So uh, go there, check out shows such as Paranormal Punchers if you're into things that go bump in the night, and check out Robots for Eyes if you're into people with cool British accents saying uh, intelligent things in a funny manner. Um, that's my summary. Um, so as always, uh, check out Sofa King podcast. Um, if you haven't uh, heard us, that's the podcast that myself and Brent and Brad Taylor are on. It is a not safe for work take on uh, current events and various things. But if you check them out, Sofa King podcast, that's one it's on the network. Um, but it's also out in the ether. Um, remember if you, if you like the show, um, uh, one of the best ways you can support us is to give us a share, give us a like, give us a follow, uh, give us an upvote on one of the social media platforms. So if you want to engage with us, you can go to Facebook uh, facebook.com and on facebook.com, this funny thing you've maybe heard of, uh, you can go to uh, Mindframe Podcast on Facebook. You can go to The Mindframe Podcast on Instagram. If Twitter is your flavor, you can go to The Mindframe Pod. And if you like Reddit, you can go to r slash mindframe podcast. So uh, that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Tune in next time for chapter 20. And remember, the lariat is closing. <laughs>